0: Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where this week four editors are going to take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Executive Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Deputy Editor Scott Intrasek. Hello, Isaac. Welcome back, Scott. And Senior Editor Tess Dacro. Hi. So the three of you are back from uh, your time in Venice. We're all super jealous of you. That's going to be the subject of this week's podcast, the Venice Biennale, the Olympics of the Art World. The 57th edition opened just last week. I guess a good place to actually begin, though, is what is the Venice Biennale?
1: Yeah, so the main component is a very large-scale exhibition that's curated each edition by a different international curator. Um, And then there are also the National Pavilions, And these are represented by an artist typically hailing from that specific country.
0: And those aren't curated by the curator of the Central No,
1: those are curated by a curator selected within that country.
0: So what did the Central exhibition look like this year? Who was curating it?
1: So this year it was curated by uh, Pompidou chief curator Christine Missel. Um, and I would say that it was generally a lot more upbeat than the 2015 edition, which was curated by Oki Enwazur, and which had a very powerful and sometimes unrelenting statement to make about the experience of the third world and sort of revising the canon um, to include artists of the diaspora. This... Biennial felt a little bit more nebulous, or quite a lot more nebulous, I would say, in its curatorial statement. It's called Viva Arte Viva, which is kind of a a celebration of artists. And that's taken very literally at the beginning of the exhibition in which um, there's literally an artist studio transplanted into the space and a real-life artist in it. And a series of images of the artist at rest or in bed um is sort of making a statement about the way in which idle time is a prerequisite for creativity
0: yeah i I've, I've liked a lot of the things that she said about we need to we need to like celebrate you know obstinance and rest and all these other things but i'm curious if the celebration of the artist this sort of positivity felt on point for this moment that we're living in right now
1: I mean, it's so just to clarify, that wasn't the only component of that section. There was also the vision of the artist as hyperproductive. Oliver Eliasson has his Green Light projects that's sort of the centerpiece of that section. And it's like this teeming workshop of activity. Um, He invites migrants and refugees and members of the public to create these green lights, which are then sold and then the money goes to NGOs. There was also Hassan Sharif's piece, um, which is like a whole installation wall to wall of sculptures in which he's just like absorbing all of these materials of every day and turning them into objects. So actually, there's a picture of the artist at rest, but then also the artist is hyper productive.
0: And the exhibition was divided up across sort of like sub pavilions, right? Like there were yeah, sub themes. a
1: series of sort of pseudo pavilions. She called them pavilions. Um, that must which, be, that's confusing.
0: Yeah, that was, it uh, was
1: that pav- was confusing. <laughs> <It's pretty laughs> confusing. I think
2: chapters maybe would have been an yeah, easier I agree. division. Um,
1: I mean, I think there was an underlying statement there about the fact that we should be defined more by our shared experiences rather than national borders so she had the pavilion of joys and fears the pavilion of the commons the pavilion of earth of color I think there were about eight or nine of them
2: what did you guys think in general because I know we were sort of joking before we left that that this theme is so broad you know that it essentially was just like a celebration of art which could seem to apply to pretty much any exhibition ever more or less um but did you think that after seeing the show that it actually was a bit more focused than the curatorial statement made it seem
1: I mean, I felt that opening with the experience of the artist, although it felt a little bit sort of woolly and could be seen as quite a cliched or romantic view of the artist, like the artist is different, um, I kind of liked it as an empathy primer for what then came, which was the Pavilion of Joys and Fears, which contained, I thought, a lot of really moving and nuanced work that dealt with different human emotions and experience. Um, and I've kind of felt more sensitized to that somehow, to that first section.
0: But I, I really feel like, you know, Oak Ways was sort of being all a hit of feeling on the head. Like I felt like it came at a, a political moment. I mean, it'd be almost more suited for now, but it, but it was it was a political moment two years ago where it really felt you know, this is something that needs to happen and it's urgent and it's important. Do you think that this theme fits in with the times in, in a maybe equally congruent but just different way?
3: Well, I think, you know, it, it's almost instructive to go back to Biennale, go to, to Messimiliano Gioni's and think about a little bit how, that, that was a very different time. And at that time, there wasn't really any nagging question around why it wasn't hyper-political or whatever. Obviously, we're in a very different time now. I think that the way in which nacelle address the topic is is kind of interesting because she took a very egoless approach so i thought that the the statement around it just being about artists by artists for artists what artists think i find kind of like a cop out and lame but in the end she actually makes quite good points so i think as a curator you're always picking artists so there there is some intention there but to say that you know, throughout the show, there are a number of works that deal with many of the same issues that Okui was getting at with his show, but in a very different way. It wasn't this kind of aggressive thing that I think a lot of people had a hard time dealing with or felt like, you know, just wasn't the role of the Biennale. I guess people have this idea that it's supposed to be kind of celebratory or, or fun, <laughs> um, which uh, which I don't necessarily agree with. And I actually I I, I think Tess, uh, your point around. I definitely resonate with your point around uh, the pavilion of artists and books feeling a little like self-indulgent and pandering to the art world. Um, it's just, you know, I don't I don't know that we need to like set out artists as this altar of the best thing in the world. Um, and that actually at the Arsenale, um, there were more interesting instances to me where she had many different artists all kind of responding to the same issue, but in very different ways and ways that... Really, if you looked at two pieces next to each other, sometimes it didn't even look like the same show, but in that way was quite effective in addressing this vastly international public that comes to Venice Biennale and has very different kind of backgrounds going into our expectations of art.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point, I think, because the Venice Biennale is such a big event and we focus on it right now when it opens, but it's going on for months and months and months, and the people who will go and see it now subsequently aren't the art world who need to see it for the press preview. And I wonder always if there's a latent hit that sort of comes out with, with people who find who it speaks to more than, you know, those who are versed in the everyday comings and goings of the art world.
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of whether or not this Biennale sort of feels right for a moment, there was a bit of an anti-modern statement across the Biennale. You know, she included Christine Macelle, a pavilion of the commons, a pavilion of traditions, pavilion of shamanism. And I think there was this feeling of sort of um, distrust with what the Enlightenment and the modern world has brought us, which does feel extremely timely and also present across artist practices at the moment in a really real way.
3: Yeah, I thought it was particularly interesting in both the Pavilion of Shamanism and the Dionysian Pavilion, this way in which you're seeing kind of an art world that's been pervaded by this post-internet aesthetics over the past few years, uh, take a very different approach to our digitized, hyper-accelerated lives, in a way that feels very relevant to other kind of cultural movements, whether that's kind of a rise of female energy around the world and uh, and or kind of return to other pre-modern cultures as a way of kind of understanding where we are now.
1: There was also very little exploration of technology, mm. was there? I feel like I, I saw very little internet.
3: There was the MacBook X that you hated. Oh, but I, hated- I I it. <laughs> That was very That's funny.
1: That's a perfect one-liner to sum up. I mean, it was just a MacBook turned into a caveman tool, which I thought was really lame.
0: It's like a New Yorker cartoon, but it, which, if you like or don't like, can take as like a positive or negative thing. All <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Well, transitioning away from the you know central exhibition, there are obviously eighty-five national pavilions across Venice. I don't know where the best place to begin is. Germany, obviously. The exhibition there won the Golden Lion. Tons of buzz about it.
1: Well, I couldn't get in.
2: <laughs> yeah, I tried. Well, I did get in. I got very excited. There was no line, but there was no line because there was no performance happening. So I saw sort of the the stage set, which is kind of minimal and eerie. But uh, Alex, I think, is the one who saw the actual event unfolding.
3: Yeah, I, I kind of somewhat mistakenly got stuck in an hour and a half long line after the inauguration, where uh, uh, some of the more Teutonic Germans in the uh, audience were very upset that they hadn't organized a better entryway protocol and, and started just yelling and screaming at the at the organizers of the, <laughs> the pavilion because it turned into a bit of a mob that people were just pushing in. But anyways, it was a bit appropriate for the whole exhibition because uh, Anna Imhoff, who did the pavilion called Faust, uh, which was created by Susanna Pfeffer um, from Castles Friedrichianum, was really the only artist that I saw that took the entire inside and outside of the pavilion and turned it really into a total work of art. So on the outside, you had these kind of border fence looking, very like heavy duty fencing um, glass panels as well. Um, You had performers on the roof and then you get inside finally um, after you get past these uh, attendants who, you know, most pavilions just have uh, staff that lets people in. um, And got people who I, I swear they were kind of auditioning to be the next uh, door person at Bergheim because very, very tough ladies who uh, barred you from the entrance with anti-fascist Adidas shorts on and uh, red <laughs> Nike caps. So Also very kind of goth normcore uh, Lower East Side Neukölln meets What a fusion <laughs> <laughs> And, and there's, there was also There were dogs outside at this point or? There are Dobermans that walk around outside And then when you walk in as well You stand on these raised glass platforms And performers are walking in And around them as well Some At some point in the five hour long performance That I didn't see um, The Dobermans actually come into the pavilion as well So when i was in there everybody is kind of half naked and emaciated there was a lot of head banging it's very aggressive it's very kind of about the oppression of our times and uh, a lot of kind of sexual violence uh present really
0: stressful it's obviously gotten a ton of praise where do you think it's come from is it is it the message is it the total use is it the emotion you know is it all of the above
3: I think it's all of the above I mean she's an artist who has been on a fairly precipitous rise over the past couple of years she had a great show at the Kunsthalle Basel last summer I think it's quite difficult work and if I if I had any critique of it I think it could use to be kind of unpacked a little bit it's very german and layered and I think that Um, The people I spoke to that that didn't enjoy it felt a bit turned off by the whole thing and and felt a little bit like accosted, which, you know, I guess you could say the same thing about Okui's
2: exhibition last year, or last biennale, I should say. It seems like in in hearing people talk about it, which I heard a lot of people talk about it, um, while we were there that people either fell on one side of the divide, either they thought it was kind of Uh, pretentious. I heard that word used a lot. Or people were like, it was very moving and intense and impactful. And, you know, I would have stayed there the whole time for five hours. But it seemed like really, it was an either either or reaction.
3: Yeah, I think it's one of those one of those tricky pieces, especially for the opening week, where, um, you know, to the extent that I had time to spend time in there, I got that there was something really fascinating going on. It represented kind of youth culture, or at least aspects of it in a way that nothing else I saw did. But at the same time, you know, it's a five hour long performance during a week when you can maybe devote like maximum 30 minutes after you've waited in an hour and a half long line to see it. Um, So, you know, I think it's a very hard one to walk away with any, you know, holistic takeaway from. But I do think that, you know, she's clearly an artist who's doing something really interesting. She also won the Absolute Art Award and I think is going to do an opera in the in the desert somewhere in in California next year, which should be pretty interesting as well. So also interesting to see the jury go for a national pavilion in the Giardini. The past uh, couple times they've picked lesser known countries uh, whose pavilions are off-site and have been significantly lower production value. I think that the German pavilion was, was probably quite expensive to put together. So an interesting kind of swing in that in that direction, too. And maybe, you know, also a nod to Germany being the last sane country in the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a little biting political critique there <laughs> at the end. Um Speaking of, of sane countries, uh, the United States is a uh, pavilion, uh, Mark Bradford, particularly interesting one, given that uh, Mark Bradford is now is, is representing the United States at a time when a president, President Trump is, is uh, in charge, someone he totally and completely disagrees with politically. I'm kind of curious what that pavilion looked like. Did it sort of capture the anxiety and animosity? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty
2: glad that there wasn't a direct political statement there, I think, because I think there, there would be really no great way to do it. But, you know, you, you enter this pavilion and the first thing you see, I think the sculpture is called Rotten Foot or something, or Spoiled Foot, <laughs> something I fairly gross understand. sounding. And it's this kind of blob that hangs down from the ceiling and you kind of, you, you have to walk around it. It kind of impedes your progress. So, I mean, maybe that was a political statement that, you know, like America is like a festering foot right now, but uh, it, here it was pretty <laughs> subtle. Um, and I think it was a pretty interesting, you know, way to enter the space. Um, it was, and there was another sort of uh, in this, was it a cupola? What, what, uh, rotunda. Rotunda. He had kind of added some elements in there that were more like architectural. It looked like a decaying space. So, yeah, I guess either one you could kind of look at as a political statement. Yeah, because but,
0: the, the, American, the the United States Pavilion looks basically like a mini White House. It has that sort of architectural style. So I think that there's always, even the if it's… based off of Monticello, Monticello, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I'm wondering, Tess, what, what did you think?
1: I loved it, actually, and I wasn't necessarily expecting to because I don't always love Mark Bradford's work. Um, but I thought it was, I mean, his work is often about some form of decay, whether it's the decay of the human body of, you know, in his works that are about HIV. But I found this exhibition incredibly visceral and um, in this huge bulbous form that Scott described I found to be really effective as sort of, it's it's like this malignant outgrowth, sort of festering cocoon that's taken, you know, root in, in America. I mean, it... It just, um, I found it very ev- evocative and atmospheric.
2: Yeah, you do kind of get the impression that if you came back two weeks later, it would have, like, grown a little yeah, bit Yeah, it was pretty I mean,
1: sinister. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um, I mean, I thought that those rooms were were by far the most successful. I also loved the the very subtle installation of a lot of litter around the pavilion.
2: I missed that somehow.
3: Or maybe I just assumed it was dirty. <laughs> maybe they picked maybe it was it up. real yeah. litter. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it was real litter. And and then I had a kind of mixed reaction to the two rooms that were basically just shows of painting. I think, you know, it, I tend to be more excited by Venice Biennale pavilions when they've taken over the entire space and really pushed their practice out of, of its usual bounds. But on the other hand, um, one interesting thing that he's doing with this project, which also goes in line with his art and practice foundation that he started in L.A., but I believe is using some of the proceeds from those the sales of those works or other means to fund a organization in Venice that helps prison inmates garner creative skills um, and sells their, their wares in a storefront somewhere in Venice. So... You know I think that that is probably a redeeming portion of the of the more I don't know commercial seeming portion of the show not that painting always is commercial.
2: well, I think he gets some heat just because he shows with Hows and worth and his paintings sell for a lot. so it's almost like he I felt a little bit bad for him and that any decision he made was going to get critiqued maybe for that reason you know because those I don't even know what those paintings cost, but probably more than will be able to afford ever i'm sure soon
3: to be seen in major museum collections across the u.s and, and acquired because definitely venice is a, is a selling opportunity and a buying opportunity for for many museums
2: too which can't be forgotten but then the pavilion ends in sort of an interesting way because it just ends with this an older video i think it's called niagara so it's it's sort of a totally different yeah i love that that, that film. was a great video yeah
0: so what are the other highlights of the national pavilions I
2: think uh, one pavilion that's worth seeking out, it's a little bit off the beaten path, um, but definitely worth checking out is the Pavilion for Antigua and Barbuda, which is showing the work of an artist I think none of us had heard of before, really. Um, uh, his name is Frank Walter, uh, essentially an outsider artist who lived in Antigua and had spent his whole life painting but not really telling anybody about it and had kind of amassed maybe 6,000 small oil paintings um many of which are in this show. And what I really loved about the guy too is that Walter just had this extreme confidence in his own ability. So he was sending letters to these very unique venues trying to pitch a retrospective for himself, Uh, not museums. He was writing like a coal mine in the UK. And he had an idea that he would do a show at a youth hostel in Germany and also on a cruise ship, I think was one of these options. So he was not lacking for, you know, For confidence but during his lifetime never had shown any of this work but uh definitely worth checking out and uh, and also the show has like this amazing massive catalog that kind of gives the whole story and and shows all the work i think it was like a definitely
3: a crowd favorite at least among the artsy staff that were there And, and i heard a lot of other people talking about it too
1: i really loved the south africa pavilion um it was composed of work by two artists one, the name, I'm sorry, I'm really going to butcher this, it's Mohau Modisakeng. Um, the other artist is Candice Brights, And I think um, Candice's work in particular, people were talking about a lot. So you come into the space and first of all, we'll see footage of Alec Baldwin and Julianne Moore in this kind of green room talking about migrant narratives um, in the first person. And they are talking about it in this very... Sort of affected, insincere manner, which is at first a little bit confusing, um, kind of over dramatized. Um, but the narratives themselves are really heartbreaking. And then you pass through to the second space and you see the actual migrants, the actual subjects of these narratives telling their own stories. And it's sort of a meditation on how the media. Um, dramatizes these stories and kind of puts a gloss on them how people pay attention if a celebrity is talking about these things when in fact um you know the people that need this attention are actually the migrants themselves
3: yeah i, I saw that piece in berlin a couple of weeks before and, and fell in love with it as well and actually the one of the feelings that struck me the most was i think almost just right below that um and also dealing with kind of migrant narratives Um, for Tunisia. The curator, Lina Lazar, didn't have actually artists participate, um, but initiated this project by which she got tourist visas for men who had tried to migrate to Europe, uh, one of them over like 300 times, I believe, and and failed. Um, So through the power structures that are the Venice Biennale, they've been allowed to come on a two-month tourist visa, to participate in this performance where they hand out so-called frisas, uh, which is this universal travel document that actually, as I read the fine print further, and I hope nobody who participated put it in their passport, but if you put it in your passport, it invalidates your passport. Um, hmm. But you can put it on the outside. So if you have a frisa, stick it on the back. Don't stick it on the inside.
0: I feel like we're doing a public service here now. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, anyways, it's it's supposed to be this kind of silent protest to say that, you know, I think everybody on there is is indicated as a migrant. Uh, the country stamp, you know, usually a visa will have some kind of indication of the country itself. Is a is an as a depiction of Pangaea. These uh, men will. They have only learned English. They've learned the script um, just to give out the freezes. They are meant to go back to Tunisia um, after the two months is up. Lena is working with the authorities to try to get them some kind of migrant status to stay for longer. I also had somebody tell me they might just disappear. Um, but then there's also people coming from um, Bangladesh, again, to kind of bring this also out to the world, not just make it about um, people trying to migrate from the Maghreb and, and the Middle East, um, but from, from the kind of global experience, as, as again is, is kind of indicated in Candice's piece as well.
0: think uh we can we can have a special white wine uh for venice to kind of give recommendations for people who haven't gone yet or maybe dare i say there right now listening to this i've been told that this shouldn't be white wine it should be campari spritz because that's the drink i'll trust you guys i'm sure you had you know your fair share (laughs) um so so scott where are you going to be drinking uh campari spritz in uh the Venice Biennale this week, but non-Biennale events only.
2: Uh, okay. So there's a there's a group show for uh, the long list of the Future Generation Art Prize, uh, which is happening. And um, I think even if you don't have that much time, it's worth going just to see the first artwork there, the first room. It's an artist, Christian Falsnass, whose name I might be also mispronouncing. Um, he's not actually there, but there's sort of a performer who's basically leading these like strange... Enforced team building exercises, is maybe one way of putting it. Um, I'm not sure how many different iterations there are of the piece, but when I was there, I was kind of asked to stand across from a total stranger in this dark room while someone's filming, and we're supposed to look into each other's eyes, and then we, we were forced to like slow dance with each other what? for what seemed like a very long period of time. It was probably actually only a minute or two. Um, <laughs>
0: it sounds kind of.
2: It was like like really moving, also. but very stressful, and it was. Yeah, it was it was definitely an experience like uh, it was more more intense than anything else I experienced we that found we
1: found Scott drinking a beer outside, needing to yeah, take the edge off. Yeah.
2: The after after <laughs> the slow dance I like kinda of made a beeline. Just like crying
0: for some reason. It
2: was just yeah, it was it was definitely I don't know if I'd want to repeat the experience every day, but uh but you guys
0: should. <laughs> well that's something of an endorsement. Um, Tess, what about you? Um I would
1: really recommend uh, making the considerable journey to the Kenya Pavilion. It's quite far flung in Venice terms over on the backside of the Giudecca Island. Um, But Kenya has had a bit of a rough ride making it to the Venice Biennale this year. Their funding was not really pulled, but essentially just didn't show up about a month or six weeks out. They had to sort of fundraise um, pretty quickly to make it happen with the help of um, a local project manager, Alessandro Passati, who runs Zueca Projects. and it's just a beautiful exhibition of, of, I think, five artists, including Arlene Wandera, Paul Anditi, Peterson Kamwathi, and a few others in the uh, this school space on the top floor. It's incredibly peaceful, beautiful paintings, sculpture, video work that I thought was very elegantly curated, um, and it's it's worth a trip.
0: And Alex, what about you? Okay, so I
3: don't know that I'm going to endorse this exhibition for its artistic merit necessarily, but I do think that anybody who goes to Venice should uh, try to see both the Palazzo Grassi and the Punta della Dogana, which is uh, both hold the Damien Hirst fiesta. But it's it's this, I, I don't know, Scott and I were walking around and, and Scott chime in here, but it is one of the crazier things I've seen in a long time. I don't think that the work is particularly interesting um, it follows this narrative of him having discovered all of these artifacts underwater, and most of them are terribly kitschy and ridiculous. But there's just so many of them; it's like almost unbelievable when you walk through. And that, it's all for
0: sale, folks. <laughs> yeah, it's all for
2: sale. Well, everything's mostly for sale all it, the time. It definitely so. does seem like yeah. he just suddenly had like found some more money, and then made another room of like gold replicas of little you know coins and bracelets and (laughs) objects and stuff worth seeing i don't know if it's
3: it just it puts you in a very different mindset like walking through there i mean on the one hand you it's like i think it's always interesting to look at kind of what the somewhat mass conception of art is and try to understand how that operates in a different way than like what i think those of us around this table would kind of flock to in terms of uh artistic content it also by the end of it i remember i I was kind of it, it just started to all look like products and i remember standing in front of this uh these two fountains that were i don't know one had a unicorn on it and like a dragon head and whatever they were very weird but you get into this place where like yeah okay you know in my uh chateau if i want to have a fountain maybe this would be cooler than the the garden store variety uh I, I don't know I'm I'm not saying Alex I'm, I'm not it, but... letting
0: you decorate my chateau but it, <laughs> I also think you know there's been a lot of controversy around that show as well so it's definitely probably worth checking out uh, so you can form your own opinions um, and I will be uh, I don't really have anything in Venice but I'll be going to the Studio Museum because their new Harlem postcard uh, series for spring of 2017. Uh, came out actually last month and this is where they uh, work with contemporary artists who are creating work that sort of sheds light on on harlem's history it's present uh in in really interesting ways and they give you a postcard for free all right well that's all we have time for this week thanks so much to uh everyone for joining us here i know you guys have probably gotten over your jet lag at this point but it's still appreciated Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. See you next time. Our producer this week was editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for free.